Welcome to the On The Edge podcast with your host, Scott Groves. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening whenever we're catching you watching this uh, replay either on YouTube or on the uh, audio podcast. I guess they're all replays, right? Because we don't do a live stream. So we drop these every Thursday. If you're enjoying stuff, please, you know, do all the things you know you're supposed to do. Click the little likey button, subscribe, subscribe on the podcast, whatever the case may be. Wherever you listen or seeing this, do me a favor and subscribe and click the like button. I'm going to start asking for that because that's how you kind of measure whether or not you're being successful or not. And I'm a big fan of having measurables. So help Help us out. Do us a favor. Uh, and we're doing it. We're doing it. We're officially naming these segments Scott's Thoughts. That sounds very pompous, and I know, but I'm Scott, and I'm sitting here doing a solo cast just talking about my thoughts. So from now on, we're going to call this segment Scott's Thoughts. Just rolls off the tongue pretty nicely, and we're doing it. We're committing to it, Chris, so we're good to go now. Um, hey, uh, three different subjects we're going to talk about tonight, and actually, this is the first time, I think, on the solo cast, and maybe one of the first times really in the podcast we're going to weigh in on this heavily. Uh, we're going to talk about COVID and the social contract that Americans made with politicians. Ooh, some... 15, 16 months ago, uh, and look at some data directly from the CDC and directly from the New England Journal of Health and directly from the government census. So we're not pulling from some crazy Alex Jones conspiracy theory, nor am I commenting on a commenter's comment from an editorial from a small segment from Kamala Harris or Donald Trump like I just I hate that I hate reaction videos when they're like well I saw this editorial from this article that was evaluating this data that the senator talked on and it's like it's like that game telephone by the time you go four or five six um, uh, uh, levels down like the message is completely distorted and it's lost for anybody keeping track at home tonight, we are smoking again, the David Doff Escurio. Um, and I really got to try some new cigars, but man, I've got like my four or five or six staples and I've just got a humidor full of them. So it's hard to get away and try like a whole new box of something. For those of you that don't smoke cigars, uh, a cheap cigar in California because of the taxes are somewhere around $10. Uh, a really good cigar is somewhere around 20 to $22. Really extravagant cigars are around $40. They normally come in a box of 20. So you're talking about a pretty big investment, like 200 to $800 for a box of cigars to see if you really enjoy them. So it's like, once you find a brand, it's hard to get away. Uh, and I'm not drinking tonight because I've got an early morning tomorrow doing jujitsu at six o'clock. So I'm drinking Gatorade Zero because um, I've pretty much cut caffeine out of my diet and I'm trying to stick to that. So my supplement uh, when I want something that has a little bit of flavor has been uh, Gatorade Zero. It's pretty awesome. So we're going to look at a few things on COVID. Uh, we're going to talk about the ongoing, sorry for those of you that don't live in California, or Austin, because you guys have the same problem. Uh, but we're going to talk about the ongoing homelessness problem and actually some very exciting news by the uh, LA City Council and Mayor Eric Garcetti. Uh, and then we're going to talk about what stories, what stories the media chooses to cover. And so let's just jump right into it. All right. You're going to have to follow some basic math here. Don't worry. I'm not leading you astray. I'm going to take some some grandiose assumptions. I'm going to, you know, uh, round to the nearest million in a couple of scenarios. And if you're listening to those podcasts, you don't have the benefit of the visual on YouTube, which if you're listening to the podcast, you should go subscribe on YouTube because sometimes we show visuals that are pretty cool. Uh, but I will, I will explain what we're looking at and go with the math. So the first website we're looking at here, because we've got to get the denominator, right? If we're going to talk about COVID, if we're going to talk about populations, if we're going to talk about vaccines, we have to get what's the denominator, the number that we are dividing by to get all these percentages. So I just went to the census.gov uh, website to get the, the most accurate U.S. population. There's apparently a birth about every eight seconds. So the current census data is estimating that there's about 
332.5 million people in America. Now, because I'm a geek, uh, I've read some articles recently on the 2020 census data and how it might be the most inaccurate census ever for a couple of reasons. One, just law of large numbers. As you get bigger and there's like a 1% variance of population or you know margin of error, uh, when you're at 100 million people versus 330 million people, obviously the number, not the percentage of the number, but the number gets much larger. So um, you know when the census says there's a 1% or 2% or 6% margin of error, those numbers get pretty big when we're talking about 330 million people. That's number one. Number two, uh, because of the rhetoric from Donald Trump and the, um, the actions of ICE, the uh, immigration, God, I can't, I can never remember what ICE stands for. Um, you have to look it up, Chris. Uh, anyway, uh, the people that deport people, uh, the branch of the government that deports people because of their most aggressive actions in probably decades under Trump, uh, and then just a lot of fear mongering by the media, the thought is that the illegal immigration population of America, which can respond to the census without you know negative ramifications, they think a lot of people just didn't respond and there's some ways that they guesstimate the numbers and extrapolate the numbers, but it's really hard when you're talking about illegal immigrants in household formations that tend to be bigger than uh, US citizens or legal immigrants. So I've read some stats that like this population survey might be off by as much as like 15, 20, 30 million, something like that. So just for ease of mathematics and giving, um, giving some of these articles that we've read their due that the US population might be significantly greater than this 332 million. And since we're growing at eight birth or a, sec a birth every eight seconds, Let's just put it at 350 million of people in America. I've heard this estimated as high as 380 million, as low as 320 million. The census comes in at 330 million, but they even admit a certain margin in error, and especially for illegals that are in the country, which, you know, uh, depending on what article you read on that, might be as low as 12 million, might be as high as 35 million. Who the hell knows? But let's just put the denominator of all the people that are in the U.S., maybe this includes tourists and whatnot, um, at around 35 million. That just comes directly from census.gov, so YouTube, please don't kick us off yet. Um, okay. Did you find out what ICE stands for, by the way, Chris? Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. It's the customs part that I always forget, which is funny because you just came through customs and you got stopped. Do you want to tell that story real quick? Because I think it's pretty hilarious. I mean, it's pretty stupid. Uh, I got pulled into secondary because I had three pieces of firewood in my trunk. You were driving back from Mexico to the U.S., right? Yeah, and the wood was from the U.S., but obviously that doesn't matter if you're coming from Mexico. And uh, and what were they worried about? Were they worried that you had like cocaine in the middle of the wood? <laughs> they they were they said that they were worried about me bringing pests back into the United States, specifically California, which totally makes sense. And I understand it. But I mean, that didn't stop them from walking around and tapping on all my windows and my doors and my panels and sticking the little mirror underneath the car. And I had <laughs> right. to open up the the engine compartment. And when they got the wood. Literally five agents all crowded around it while they split it apart with a screwdriver and a hammer. And again, I don't know if they were looking for like bags of coke in there or they were actually looking for pests, but uh, that's what it was. I mean, fortunately, it only took like 10 minutes and then I was on my way, but I just thought it was funny because like, okay, I get it. Like the pests, I totally get it. But um, five agents to look at a piece of wood. Yeah. Do, like, were, were they at least polite? They, 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 of... they were polite. Okay, yeah, cool. they, they were polite. Hey, um, score one for U.S. But, customs agents. But to be to to be fair, I'm terrible at picking lines. And as you as you may or may not know, in San Ysidro, you have a choice of about thirty different lines to pick. And the one I got in was like it was 
there were like three cars going through in every other lane for every one car in my lane. So the, the agent in my lane was just checking the heck out of everybody. Just having a bad day. And and she even said, like, are you sure you have nothing to declare? I'm like, no, I just have some groceries. Like, oh, okay. Like, I think a sensor picked up something organic material and ah. it was the and it was the firewood. Oh. So secondary oh. for firewood. All wells that ends well. At least it, you weren't bringing anything and leaving. Right. And it's Mexico. weird, like trying not to look nervous because I really do have nothing to hide, but it's like an inherently nerve wracking situation. Right. So you're like trying to not look nervous because you're not nervous, but you kind of are. Right. And, and, and especially when they're like, do you have anything to hide? I'm like, well, no, but I think of all the people who I've let drive my car. And I'm like, well, I let Mike borrow my car one kind. I know he smokes weed everywhere like, he goes. Here's the litmus test. Let's make sure there's no pipe in my backpack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. Well, that's funny times. Um, all right. So anyways, uh, back to this COVID conversation that we're having. Uh, 350 million people, we're going to kind of overestimate U.S. population. Now, if you go to usfacts.org, uh, which is a nonprofit, and, and I've seen these same numbers parroted elsewhere, so I'm comfortable using these numbers, even though it doesn't come directly from the CDC, because the CDC's graph is very unappealing. Um, now, there's a couple of things. This is talking about the U.S. nation's progress on vaccinations. So they're saying 189 million or roughly 58% of the population have received at least one dose of the vaccine. 163 million have um, received one dose of the, of the vaccine. So that's about 50%. Now, the reason there's significantly more people that might have received only one dose is because remember, until there was that little snafu with the warning label, Johnson & Johnson, their vaccine, which is responsible for 30, 40 million of the the vaccines administered, they were a one dose, um, a one dose type situation. Uh, however, there's also a lot of people that got the Moderna and the fax, the Pfizer, which you're supposed to take two doses. And then maybe they took the one dose and didn't feel particularly good or got the one dose and got scared or the one dose and got some misinformation and never took the second dose. Now, of course, I think they call it efficacy or the um, the ability of the vaccine to work if you only take the first dose on what's supposed to be a two-dose vaccine series, that's a problem. It's probably not as effective. So let's say, you know, splitting the difference somewhere between the people that got the Johnson & Johnson one dose as they were supposed to versus the people that got scared. Let's say somewhere around 175 million people in America have the vaccine. And here's where I don't want our YouTube channel to get canceled and I don't want to get into the politics. However, for almost a year now, first under Trump and then under Biden, both administrations, both presidents, both sides of Congress, at different times, the CDC, the World Health Organization, everybody has been told, everybody has been told, hey, if you get the vaccine, you don't have to wear a mask. You're health. You're healthy. Yes, there could be some breakthrough cases, just like when people get the flu vaccine. But if you've got the antibodies occurring because of the vaccine, it should limit your um, negative outcomes. So if you were, and this is a horrible thing to say, but if you were supposed to die from COVID and you got the vaccine, you'll probably just be hospitalized. And if you were supposed to be hospitalized and you got the vaccine, it will temper the negative side effects and the negative uh, condition of getting COVID. So, you know, if you're supposed to enter the hospital, maybe you only have like severe flu. And if you're supposed to have severe flu, maybe you'll just have mild symptoms. And if you're supposed to have mild symptoms, maybe you'll have no symptoms, right? So that's the that's supposed to be the the thought. And And both parties, everybody has said this. Scientists have said this. Our world leaders have said this. So I'm just going to assume 
mostly because I don't want our YouTube channel to get canceled, and two, because I'm not a doctor. Let's just assume the vaccines are relatively safe, just as safe as any other medicine out there. Yes, there's been some cases in the uh, the VAERS system that have reported deaths and negative health outcomes and whatnot, but let's just assume for the case of this podcast, the vaccine is effective and it's not particularly detrimental. So we've got about 175 million people that are vaccinated out of 350 million, which works out nicely because it's about half. Okay, now, COVID data, reported cases, and, and this is where the math gets a little bit more complicated. Reported cases, that means people that tested positive and then passed away, or passed away and then tested positive, or people that tested positive because they were in the hospital, whether or not they were in the hospital for COVID-related symptoms, or like my sister experienced, she was just in there to give birth, because uh, I have a new nephew, which is awesome. Uh, she was just in there to give birth. She wasn't. Uh, she she was feeling fine, but they gave her a COVID test, and they're like, hey, you have COVID. So um, she was one of those people, people who didn't have symptoms, thank God, because she was pregnant. That could have been really ugly. Um, but she was pregnant, so they gave her the test. So there's 34.7 million people. Let's just round that up to 35 million people. 35 million people that have tested positive for uh, COVID. And again, this doesn't mean that you were hospitalized. It doesn't mean that 35 million, one-tenth of the population was hospitalized. It means you wanted to go on a vacation or you were in the hospital for a normal procedure and you didn't have any symptoms or you got scared because you were exposed to somebody even though you didn't feel bad yet and you went and you tested positive. That doesn't mean 35 million people were alarmingly sick from COVID because if you were alarmingly sick in the last 18 months, you got a COVID test, right? So it's like, it's a, it's, it's kind of, it's not an either or thing. Like you might've been totally healthy and never had any symptoms, but they still have the CDC still has a positive test on record for you because you got tested for some reason outside of your control. For example, I talked to a guy that's a caterer on uh, movie sets and in the last 18 months, he's had 72 COVID tests because every time that he's going to serve food to, you know, a couple hundred people that are on site for a movie, obviously, they want to make sure he doesn't have COVID and he's not infecting 200 people and being a super spreader event. So that's 72 negative cases uh, he's been tested. However, there's a chance that at any time he could test positive, even if he doesn't have symptoms, and that would still go into this positive case. Okay. So now we have 35 million people that have tested positive from COVID. And this is where the math gets very, very confusing. And I've read this a couple different ways. The CDD, the CDC is reporting that they believe one in 4.2 infections were reported. Meaning, of all the people in America that had COVID, probably only one in 4.2 actually had a reported case, meaning that they tested positive for COVID and then went into the database, right? Because you figure there's millions of people who have had COVID, but didn't feel particularly sick or knew they had it and knew that the, you know, medical prescription was basically just drink fluids and take some Tylenol and, and try to deal with the symptoms. So there, I know a lot of people that know for certain they had COVID. They're around other people that had COVID, then they had all the symptoms of COVID, but they're like, there's nothing they can do. I'm just going to kind of ride it out for the next 10 days, self-quarantine and whatnot. So the CDC is estimating, and this math gets very confusing. This is way above my head. This is using statistics and extrapolations and medical data and modeling and shit that I don't don't understand because um, I barely made that out of geometry in high school. Uh, but 1.42 people um, who were infected 
actually tested positive or were reported. Same thing. They tested positive and then that goes into the report. So if you just take 35 million people, 35 million people times 35 million people who we know tested positive and they're saying probably only one in four people who actually had the infection tested positive. So 34 million times 4.2, that gives us 147 million people who have had COVID in America. And that's a giant, giant number. Now, I've read some articles that say that that's a way huge overestimate. I've read some articles and some political pieces that say that's a way underestimate. But just on the CDC website, they're saying that one person out of every 4.2 people that were infected actually reported the case that they were infected because they went and got a test or they were forced to get a test or they accidentally had a test or whatever. Now, it's interesting because... I, I don't know. I think that number could be lower. I think that number could be higher. Let's just say, because I'm going to try to prove to all of you that all this madness should be over. Let's just say for the purpose of this, if I'm being super, super gener gener generous, let's just say only, only, <laughs> that's a crazy number, only 100 million people in the US have had COVID. So I'm going to like shave off 47 million in good faith for what I'm going to try to convince you of next. But I'm actually underplaying the CDC's own data. But let's just say there's 100 million that have had COVID. Okay, so whew, next, let's talk about the population of children under 18 in America. The population of America, which is currently under 18, again, I went to, well, I went to childstats.gov. Um, this is a government website. The data is laid out a little awkward, but it had some other cool caveats that I was enjoying looking at. So sorry, this table is not particularly easy to read, but the only matter that really, the only number that really matters is right here in 2021, 22%, uh, 22% of the U.S. population is under 17. 22% of the U.S. population is under 17. So again, going back to our 350 million uh, number of U.S. people, people in the U.S., times 22%, uh, that gives us 77 million people are under the age of 18. Okay. Why is this important to our COVID conversation? Well, this is important to our COVID conversation, because if you go to the CDC data, uh, and this is provisional, provisional, so not you know uh, not guaranteed, but kind of what they can pull quickly, uh, provisional COVID nineteen uh, COVID nineteen deaths focus on age zero to eighteen years old. And by the way, we should pause and say how amazingly lucky we are, and how amazingly thankful we have been that uh, COVID for whatever rhyme or reason, does not affect people under 18. Now, somebody is going to leave some nasty comments and roll their eyes and say, hey, well, what about long COVID? And what about unintended consequences that we don't know yet? And what about all these kids that are getting you know, COVID? What if there's some extrapolation that 20 years from now, they don't have the same reproductive abilities as people that didn't have COVID? We don't know about all that. You can't prove the counter narrative, meaning, we know what we know now and you can't prove the counter narrative and the counter narrative would be something like, but yeah, but you know, what about kids in the future when they're 35 and they have COVID and then they get cancer? Are they going to have worse health outcomes? We don't know any of that yet. So we can't extrapolate that data. We're just working on what we know. And what we know is that kids under 18 generally do not have negative outcomes to COVID. So this data that we're looking at is from, uh, it is data updated as of July 28th, 
And this goes all the way back to the beginning of 2020 uh, when we started testing for COVID, when we started tracking COVID deaths, when we started tracking negative COVID outcomes. So starting the week of January 4th, 2020, to July 24th, 2021. So we've got effectively 19 months, 19 months, okay? Um, There were 124 COVID deaths of children under the age of four, and there was 282 deaths of children under the age of 18 from COVID. So 124 plus 282, that's 406 youth deaths from COVID in 19 months. Now, this is one place where I will extrapolate some information. um, And this is the thing that will probably get us banned from YouTube is that remember, there's a difference between correlation and causation. There's a difference of dying from COVID versus dying with COVID. So I hate to even say this out loud because I I hate to personalize any deaths, but let's just go back to my sister, for example. Um, My sister went to the hospital for a normal checkup to have her baby, uh, or she might actually been in the hospital to have the baby. They tested her for COVID. She had COVID. So if she had COVID, and I don't know this to be certain because I'm not a a natal uh, practitioner or nor am I a pediatrician or nor do I have a medical degree, but I would guess if the mother has COVID, the child probably has COVID or has the COVID antibodies. Now, let's say something went horribly wrong with the um, with the birth and something happened to my sister or the child, right? If that happened, just normal cause, because sadly, people do still die during pregnancy, and then they had a positive COVID test, that death, even though it wasn't COVID-related, would go down on this table of somebody dying with COVID. COVID, right? Or potentially from COVID, even if it was something else, there was preeclampsia and somebody had bleeding issues or there was some other type of pregnancy um, pregnancy uh, complications. So I think it's fair to say of these 406, 406 youths who are on this table, some percentage of them, I don't know if it's 1% or 70%, probably died, again, correlation versus causation, probably died with COVID versus from COVID. So for example, I know one of the individuals who's counted in this number, actually, no, they're not counting in this number because I think they were just 19 or 20. One of the first young people to die in California, um, and it was a big news media story because this individual had died probably from going to Disneyland, getting infected from somebody coming home and passing away, which is tragic. Um, He did die from COVID, but he was at Disneyland celebrating the fact that he had had some super rare testicular or prostate cancer and he had just gone through multiple rounds of chemotherapy and his immune system was shot and his white blood cell count was probably down in the cellar because he had just gone through this tragic childhood uh, form of cancer and whatnot. Now, of course, I'm never going to judge somebody going to Disneyland after recovering from, or thinking that they recovered from that. But in retrospect, probably not the best idea if your immune system is compromised during COVID or not during COVID, to go to a place where a a monster amount of people are there touching everything and spreading all kinds of germs. And any of you that have kids know this to be true. You know, you go to Disneyland, somebody comes back sick, right? You go to preschool the first couple of weeks, somebody comes back sick. You go to a water park, somebody comes back sick because there's just shit everywhere, literal shit everywhere. Um, So of this 406 uh, youths who have died of COVID, from COVID, you know, some percentage is probably correlation, not causation. And if we think about, you know, let's say it's 400 or it's 300 or it's 200 or it's 100, out of 77 million 
uh, children, many of which are a case study because many children have had COVID. And thankfully, thankfully, they're not dying. They're not on respirators. Um, I mean, it's it's really a miracle that this disease doesn't uh, attack children the way it attacks the elderly. Um, but we've got 77 million people under 18, many of which, many millions of which have had COVID. And luckily, only 406 has died. So if we just take 406... 0. 0.000 divide by 77 million. That's 0.0001% of people under the age of 18 that have died of or from COVID or with COVID. Should should say died from COVID or with COVID. 0.0001. And again, didn't get through calculus in high school. But that's effectively a rounding error. I don't, I don't want to belittle the amount of grief that these 400 families must have felt from losing a child. But if we're talking about setting national policy, right? If we're talking about whether or not businesses are going to survive or not, if we're talking about shutting down the economy, if we're talking about taking away people's liberties, if we're talking about forcing people to get a vaccine that is still technically, as of the day we're recording this, which is August 1st, um, which is still not FDA approved because it never went through the stage four trials. If we're talking about taking actions like this, we need to know what we're looking at, right? And 0. 0.0001 is effectively a rounding error. And it's actually even lower than that because remember, this is data for the last 19 months, not over a one-year period or one uh, a one-year measuring period, which is normally how most of this math is um, is uh, is uh, studied and, and displayed. So now... This gets a little complicated, and this is where if you're not watching, well, I guess it doesn't really matter because I don't have this Venn diagram up on the stage or up on the computer. So if we do this Venn diagram of like 175 million have been vaccine, vaccinated, 100 to 150 million have had COVID-19, so they have the naturally occurring antibodies, right? That's historically when we didn't have vaccines, that's when you would get to herd immunity when about two thirds or three fourths or four fifths or nine tenths of the population of the little tribe or the country or the nation state or whatever. You know, when you got to a certain place where the disease didn't have anybody to jump to, that would be herd immunity. Um, and, you know, we're, we're probably not there yet mathematically. Again, I'm not a vi virologist, so I don't know what constitutes herd immunity. Is it when half the population has already had a disease and has naturally occurring antibodies? But again, somewhere between 100 and 150 people have um, naturally occurring antibodies. Then there's this other circle in the Venn diagram, about 77 million kids under 18 who aren't going to die from the disease and and statistically don't really have a chance of dying, although some have died, let's be clear. Um, and most of them, like an overwhelming percentage, 70, 80, 90%, have not even been symptomatic. They get it. They don't know they have it. The only reason we know they have it is because we happen to administer a test for some reason. So, you know, you've got, let's see, 175 million, plus you've got somewhere between 100 and 140 million who have had it. Then you've got 77 million under 18. Now, here, here's the other challenge of the, let's say, 100 million that have had the disease, right? Um, we don't really know how many of those 100 to 150 million who have had the disease also fit into the Venn diagram of 175 million people that were vaccinated or fit into the Venn diagram of 77 million people who are under the age of 18. Because obviously, let's say you got COVID a year and a half ago, but you didn't have any symptoms 
and you're concerned about um, COVID because you don't know if you have the antibodies, so you just take the vaccine. So that's kind of doubling up on the numbers and diminishing this. But at the end of the day, you take 175 million plus 100 million plus 77 million, you know, we're at 250 million, maybe conservatively, maybe 275 million aggressively based on the math that we just looked at the CDC, then maybe you carve out 25 or 30% because of some overlap in this Venn diagram of people who got vaccinated and also already had COVID. So, you know, maybe you end up somewhere around 250 million, 220 million, 210 million people in America either have naturally occurring antibodies, won't die from this, or have gotten vaccinated, and there's, you know, maybe at most 350 million people in the country. We're pretty fucking close to like everybody's either had it, is vaccinated from it, or there's probably another cross-section of 10 million, 20 million, 30 million, 40 million, 50 million people who have vaccine hesitancy and they're just not going to get it no matter what. You make it required. You can't go to concerts. You tell them they have to, they can't work at the Veterans Administration or a hospital. There is a certain percentage of people that just aren't going to get the vaccine. So in a free society where we all have to evaluate our own risk and we should be able to evaluate our own risk, we've probably done about as well as we can. And let's not forget, and this is I think the really important part, and this is probably what we'll title this little section, is like this idea of driving COVID down to zero and everybody having to get vaccinated, this is not the social contract America signed with our politicians. This is, this is not the, as a good citizen, this is not the social contract that we signed with our politicians, right? Because if you got way back when, you remember it was two weeks to flatten the curve. Hey, everybody, we got to do the right thing. We got to be good citizens. We got to shut down your job. We got to shut down this business. We all have to wear masks voluntarily, which by the way, if you look at the voluntary mask wearing in states like California, even Florida before they reopened, even Texas before they reopened, especially in more um, liberal progressive states like uh, Massachusetts, the voluntary mask wearing was like, depending on the region you're looking at, between like 82 and 92%. Like citizens did their part, right? That was the social contract with these people. All right, well, we'll let you, you know, put us on unintended unemployment. We'll let you shut down our business. We won't have massive riots and protests in the streets over this. Um, you know, we, we won't hoard masks, although people hoarded toilet paper, which is still the weirdest thing to me. Um, you know, we'll, we'll wait until ventilators can be built. Like, when's the last time you saw a news report of ventilators? Because the American public, the manufacturing industry, they stepped up. Like, Tesla stopped making Teslas for a while and started making ventilators. Uh, Johnson & Johnson and a bunch of other companies that you wouldn't think, car manufacturers, retooled their factories and pumped out a fuck ton of ventilators. When's the last time you heard about a, a shortage of ventilators, right? Because Americans answered the call, right? Americans did the right thing. They wore the masks. They stayed home. They let their business get deteriorated and financially devastated and in many places bankrupt. bankrupt. You know, uh, I think Yelp put out a report that somewhere around 30 or 40% of restaurants on their site will never return to open for business again. Um, 
so so we've everybody did their part, right? Everybody did their part. And now, now the goalposts are changing where it's like, well, no, no, no. We have to drive COVID down to zero. We've got to make sure that, you know, not one death of anybody over 18 or under this age or whatever, whatever metric they're choosing, right? And now it's, you know, if you look at Don Lemon, and we should probably insert this Don Lemon clip here, Chris, because it's insane. You know, Don Lemon was on CNN and of course, a lot of other I would say more progressive or liberal reporters or voters get their their kind of talking points from MSNBC and CNN. You know, he's just going off about how anybody who hasn't been vaccinated, whether you had COVID or not, and by the way, I, I don't mind sharing this personally. It kind of weirds me out when people ask me, but whatever. Um, I had COVID. Um, I had COVID. It sucked. I don't want to downplay it at all. It sucked real bad for five days. When it comes to like flu symptoms, seasonal flu, it, it kicked my ass. Now I've had like one day stomach bugs or hangovers um, that felt way worse. You know, I felt like I was going to die for about 24 hours. Um, but this was really bad for about five days and then massive fatigue and brain fog for about another seven to 12 days after that. I don't want to downplay it at all. It sucked. But now I have naturally occurring antibodies to the disease and I don't feel like rushing out and having a or rushing out and getting a vaccine, which is currently, you know, not yet FDA approved. Uh, maybe that will be soon and maybe we'll reevaluate as a family what we want to do. But for now, that's just not part of our decision-making tree. Like we had it, we're fine. I lived, we're good. Okay, cool, moving on. So the social contract that we all agreed to last March, April, May was like, hey, two weeks to flatten the curve, do what you can, retool industry, let's get supplies made. And we did it and we did it, right? And then there's just an ongoing forever excuse about politicians, more and more control, more and more control, more and more control. And so now it's like, oh, well, if you're unvaccinated, even if you had COVID and you have naturally occurring antibodies, you shouldn't be able to do this or you shouldn't be able to participate in society. And my answer is, fuck you. Like that was, that one wasn't the social contract. Two, that's not what the math is panning out to show. Like we don't have to continue to be shut down. And number three, if you really want to be mad about something, or if you want to be really mad at somebody for vaccine hesitancy, if you really, really want to be angry about who's to blame, because everybody's got to have somebody to blame about why these idiot, moronic, anti-science, anti-vaxxer people won't go get vaccinated. And I, I refuse to even call people who won't get vaccinated this time around on this disease anti-vaxxers because I think they're vaccine hesitant and the vaccine hasn't been a long, around long enough to prove um, not, uh, to prove that it's effective and is safe as other vaccines that we have in the repertoire. And after it gets FDA approved, I'll probably change some of my thinking on this. Um, but I, don't, I refuse to call people that were, I refuse to call people who refuse to get the COVID-19 vaccine anti-vaxxers. I prefer to call them vaccine hesitant because that's what they are. But if you really want to blame somebody, go back and watch some of the presidential debates. Go back and watch Chuck Schumer's comments. Go back and watch Kamala Harris's comments. Go back and watch Biden's comments. Because they wanted to take jabs at Trump during a very partisan political season of the presidential election, all of those people I just mentioned, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, they explicitly said that they would not take a vaccine or they would be hesitant to take a vaccine designed under Trump. And they went on further to specifically say if Trump told us to take the vaccine, aka if a politician in charge told us to take the vaccine, we would we would not do it. And then and then they would comma, but you know, if Fauci said it was okay, or if the CD said it was okay, you know, I would reevaluate. But it was 
you know, beat your chest. I'm scared of any type of vaccine. I don't trust any type of vaccine developed under Trump. Um, and then I will not take a vaccine mandated by the president if Trump happens to still be president when the vaccine is released or if he gets reelected and it's released later down the line. Uh, comma, but, you know, if Fauci said it's okay or if the CDC says okay, I guess I will. But think of how many people are sitting there. They hate Trump. They're scared of the government. They've seen the CDC, the World Health Organization, flip-flop on a bunch of um, ideas. And then they've got the leading politicians in the country who are most likely to win the presidency saying like, mm, I'm hesitant about it. Anything developed under this guy, I don't trust. They're rushing it to market. You know, I, I wouldn't take it if the president told me to take it. I mean, that that is where a lot of the vaccine hesitancy and the negativity started. And now that we've now that we've politicized everything and we've made everything a party fight, you know, you, you kind of reap what you sow, right? Uh, and so the last thing that I want to say on this is I think this would be a much different conversation if children were dying at the same rate as elderly people, right? So let's say over 75 years of age, 343,000 people in the last uh, 19, 19 months have died of COVID, 343,000 over the age of 75. So if we take our 350 million... Divide by 343,000. Um, nope, I did that the wrong way. <laughs> 343,000 divided by... See, I told you guys I barely made it through college or made, barely made it through high school. 350 million. 0. 0.000. I can't even get a number because my calculator doesn't go that high. What percentage would that be? That'd be like half a percent? Yeah, half a percent of elderly people? Um, no. Chris, somewhere on your computer, do... Um, 343 million divided, or 343,000 divided by 350 million. 343,000 divided by 350 million. What percentage do we come up with? So I, I think if children were dying, this would be a much different calculus. Uh, people would be taking this much more seriously. Um, there'd be a lot more concern. So what percentage is that? 0. 0.0009. Hmm, that seems awkward. What are the numbers again? 343,000. Oh, no, no, that's an unfair. Never mind. I screwed that all up because we want, we need to know what percentage of Americans are over 75. So I screwed all the data up. Hold on. Population check. Do, 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 do. Where is my population check? So 65 and older. Okay, never mind. Uh, here we go. This, this is the better way to do it. 17% of people are over 65. Um, so seven, 350 million times 17%. This will get us close enough. So about 59 people, 59 million people are, um, call it, it's 59.5, so call it 60 million. 60 million are over 65. This has 75. So we got to take 134,000, 134,000 plus 603,000 divide by, what number did I just tell you? All right, do this number, Chris. A bunch of numbers. A bunch of numbers. Give me uh, 350 million times 17%. 59.5 million. Okay, so 60 million. All right, so about 2% of the elderly population over 65 in the last 19 months have passed from or with COVID. That's a that's a drastic number. Um, however, as somebody told me the other day, well, people over 75, they tend to pass away a lot. Um, so we, you'd have to really dig in and be like, all right, well, what percentage of that population dies annually from other causes? And it's very confusing. But my whole point is that 
if this was affecting children, I think it would be a little bit different. And I, I looked this up just because I thought it was interesting. Um, and this is actually really sad to look up as a parent. The most recent data where I could find um, uh, in the New England Journal of Health of children's deaths, there was about 20,000 children who died under the age of 18. So uh, again, a very small percentage, thank God, of 75 million. Uh, what was interesting is drowning was 995 a year. And remember, in the last 19 months, we've had 400 people die from, 400 children under the age of 18 die from or with COVID. And so if we figure, let's see, 995 divided by 12, that's about 82, 80, 83 people, 83 children under the age of 18 um, die monthly from drowning. So there's been, sadly, about 1,575 kids who have died in the last 19 months from, uh, from drowning, uh, accidental deaths, versus 400 that have died of COVID. And, and again, I'm not trying to minimize how horrible it must be for those 400 children's families. I'm just saying, like, when we're doing major policy for $350 million, you kind of have to look at this a little bit more mathematically. So imagine if tomorrow somebody I knew lost a child in a drowning accident. And somehow I had some big giant platform or I was Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or um, Rand Paul or Rand Paul, Rand Paul or Ron Paul, somebody who had a huge, huge media profile, could talk about this stuff passionately, had the ability to, to create policy. And what if I said, hey, you know what? If we can save even one kid, right? I think there should be a new national law that every swimming pool should be filled with dirt um, I think children under the 18 years of uh, under the year under the age of 18 should not be able to go in a boat or swim in a lake or swim in a creek or swim in a pond um, because you know people are dying. Like if we could only save one life, first of all, everybody would think I'm batshit crazy. And the reason you would think I am batshit crazy is the same reason you should allow people to make their own decisions when it comes to COVID, make their own decisions when it comes to getting the vaccine, make their own decisions on whether or not they want to have their business open and whether or not they want to serve people with or without masks on and whether or not they want their staff to have masks on or masks off. People should have their own personal freedom to make choices because this is how we evaluate risk. You know, the accidental drowning uh, stat is a great example of how we evaluate risk. Because if I was to lose a child in a drowning accident, I would 100% be suicidal. I would be devastated. I would be crushed. However, I still let my kids swim. We still have a pool in the house. Now, we've been probably aggressively, probably too aggressively outrageous on how we've scared the kids about not going in the pool without mommy or daddy and there's a locked fence around it and we've taken all the precautions. Um, but I still let my kids swim, right? And sometimes I even turn my back on them when they're swimming to change the song on YouTube. Or, you know, I will let them go on a boat with, with friends when they get a little bit older. Because how you evaluate risk is not the fear porn that the mass media has been pushing us. How you evaluate risk is, hey, this is a thing that I wanna do that's part of society. It's something that maybe brings me joy, you know, like going out to a movie theater without a mask on or going to a restaurant without a mask on or making your own health decisions on whether or not you choose to get vaccinated. Um, and then you just make your risk and you live with the outcomes, 
right? There, there's no national push to pull to 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 fill all pools with sand or dirt because there happens to be some children that die from that. There's actually something like eleven thousand accidental drownings uh, every year in pools when you talk about adults and whatnot. Uh, not nearly as much as the six hundred thousand that we've had from COVID. But you know, if we're if we're really getting down to this idea of like we got to lock down again, we why wear masks? We got to drive this number down to zero, which is never going to happen. COVID is probably here with us to stay. Um, and you start having that train of thought. It's just, it's just asinine. So, um, get over it. Long segment on Scott's thoughts there on, uh, on COVID. It's the first time we've really dove into it. And like everything I believe in, it really just comes back to personal choice and personal liberty. All right. Relighting my cigar and getting a drink of this Gatorade Zero, which is lovely. Let's move on to one of my favorite talking points and one of my favorite things to complain about because we have some good news. Mayor Garcetti, that spineless twerp, um, in, in to his credit. Huh? Just your opinion. Just my opinion. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Mayor Garcetti actually does have a spine. I would just say if you're if you're um, if you're looking at characteristics that would uh, describe somebody's character, not their physicality, I would say he doesn't have a spine. Uh, however, the Los Angeles City Council voted, I think, eleven to two or thirteen to two. Uh, thirteen to two. Yeah, we have fifteen members on our city council, not thirteen. Uh, the U.S. The, the U.S. The Los Angeles City Council voted thirteen to two to wait for it. Wait for it criminalize homelessness. Okay, this is not as big of a deal as you think it is. Until about six years ago, homelessness, technically, was criminalized in Los Angeles, meaning there was a criminal statute that if you were sleeping on the sidewalk or shitting in front of somebody's business or living under an underpass of a freeway, the police or the sheriff's department or whatever entity they wanted to send could go and kind of shoo you away. They could they could give you a day to leave. They could tell you that we're going to take down your stuff. We're going to throw this away. We're going to bulldoze this little shanty home that you just built. Um, but you got to move on. You got to get into a homeless shelter. You've got to um, you know you, you've got, you've got to get into rehab. You got to go stay with friends, family, something like that. That's how it was until about six years ago, and then they passed this camping ordinance and this homestead ordinance in the city of Los Angeles massive epic mistake where two things happened. One, they decriminalized homelessness and they also made it so that if you pitched a tent anywhere, it was considered a homestead. Now, homestead is a legal term for like where you live and there's certain things that come alongside a homestead. Like for example, the police just can't walk up to my front door and say, hey, we're searching your house, my homestead, because they have to have a warrant. They have to have probable cause, right? Like all these things we see on these uh, police serial dramas where the police can do this, the police can't do that. A lot of that revolve around homestead laws. And so what happened was the city of Los Angeles said, well, wherever you pitch your tent, that tent can be a homestead, meaning that the police couldn't search it for weapons. The police couldn't search it for drugs. You could be openly running prostitution out of your homelessness tent. And if the cops knew it, they couldn't do anything because they can't search your homestead, nor can they take legal action inside your home, AKA the tent. But how the fuck are you going to get a warrant on a tent? So this, this reversal of this criminalizing homelessness, which happened a few years back and this like pro camping on the streets, um, uh, um, ordinance, which I'll, I'll look these up and we'll talk about it another time just cause we're going a little bit long today. 
uh, they were they were overturned or they the the ordinances were changed, and now they're basically going back to how it is, right? Because what has happened and what the city of Los Angeles has found is that surprise, surprise, when you normalize behavior, more people do it. And so there's a recent poll where somewhere around like thirty to thirty nine percent of people that are homelessness in LA and San Francisco, the two cities they polled, uh, they came from other states because our weather is more favorable. They heard that it was no longer criminal to uh, camp on the streets, so they're not going to get harassed by the police who don't want, I don't know, you having a tent right in front of some local business. So like 39% of the homelessness people in California moved to California to be homeless. They, they To be clear, they were homeless somewhere else. They heard the getting was good in Los Angeles, and then they f- somehow hitchhiked, walked, took a bus, took some, it'd be weird if, if other cities were busing people to, to California, but, or other states were busing people to California. Maybe that's happening. Maybe it's not. Um, but yeah, like 30 to 40% of people who are homeless in the state of California didn't start out homeless in California. They came here because we have, um, softer laws on crime, softer laws on shoplifting. You know, we talked about this in the last Scott's thoughts where you can't get prosecuted. If you steal something worth less than $950, you know, we made it easier to camp and just live on the streets. And, and they're just the city of LA. Thank God is finally sick of it. We put enough pressure on the council, men and women, who then put enough pressure on Eric Garcetti. He did not have the option to veto this because he knew it would just get overturned by the city council. And so now there's a measure that makes it illegal to sit, lie, sleep, or set up encampments near sensitive use properties, a.k.a. a 1,000 feet from a school, an underpass, an on-ramp, basically all the places where these homeless encampments have gone up. And look, I'm sympathetic to people who are homeless. However, however, and this is an interesting stat, the number of nights that somebody is homeless if they are not on drugs, um, they are mentally stable, and they are actively looking for solutions, okay? So you take somebody who's, you know, the the sob story that they run on the front page of the LA Times, this family, da-da-da, couldn't afford their bills, and they got kicked out, and they're homeless. So if you're if you're not on drugs, if you're not mentally ill, and you're actively looking for help or solutions, the average Californian is homeless for two nights, which is horrible. I don't want any kids living in their car for two nights. But the good news is there are homeless shelters out there who can house about 40% of the estimated homeless population in America, or sorry, the uh, in Los Angeles. So sorry, in Los Angeles County, there are homeless beds, shelters, agencies that can house about 40% of the homelessness. However, they have rules. You can't go in there and do drugs. You can't go in there and have sex. You can't go in there if you're drunk, right? And so a lot of people just show up. They don't want to play by the rules and they go back to sleeping on the streets, which is sad, which is tragic, but that doesn't mean we have to normalize it, right? So there's about 40% of government agencies that can somehow house the homelessness. There's probably estimated another five or 10% capacity with outreach programs, churches, whatnot. And then, this is my opinion, this is my opinion, this is not fact, I've not read this stat anywhere, this is not part of this Business Insider article, but I have to believe, based on the rise in homelessness that we've seen, I have to believe somewhere, some astronomical percentage between, maybe it's as little as 10%, maybe it's as much as 50%. If you don't normalize it, if you don't legalize it, if you don't have 30% of people relocating from other states to be homeless here because it's easier, if you let people know like, no, 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 you don't get to build your full-time encampment and stay here. We're going to keep moving you and, and you know, 
hauling your stuff away in trash cans. You need to get sober. You need to get in a program. You need to go find a place to say that's not on the streets. I've got to believe somewhere between 10 and 50% of these people either have somewhere to go or they need to be pushed into rehab or they need to be pushed into a homeless center or they need to be pushed into a government program or they some of them probably need to be incarcerated. Um, some of them probably need to be uh, involuntarily confined to a mental institute until they can get evaluated and get on some type of prescription drug, which there are plenty of programs. There's plenty of government bloat for all of this stuff. There's a program for this and there's an outreach program for that and there's funding for this. There's plenty of money in the system to fix the problem. The first thing you have to do is stop normalizing it, which is, this is step one, criminalizing it. Then you have to follow through. Then you have to start pushing these people along and you've got to make it uncomfortable for people to be homeless so that they can make the uncomfortable decision of doing the things that are going to get them to not be homeless, right? So you basically have to make it more uncomfortable for somebody to sit on the side of the road and be a drug addict than it would be uncomfortable to find their way into rehab or or live by the rules of a homeless shelter and not do drugs, which is fucking miserable. I know a lot of people that have been strung out on a lot of drugs and the rehab process is brutal and there's relapses and it's tough under the best of conditions. I'm not saying these people have it easy. I'm not saying it's an easy solution. I'm saying this is step one on the, this is step one on a very long road to fix the homelessness problem in California and kudos to the city council and kudos to Mayor Garcetti for following through on this. Okay. Next Scott's thoughts. Next Scott's thought. Um, I have a really good friend and I'll just call him Joe. I'll just name him Joe. Although his real name is Joe, but I won't use his full name because he and I have a lot of healthy political discussions back and forth on phone calls, on text messages and tutoring sessions on, um, yeah, I take tutoring by the way, uh, on Facebook, all kinds of places. We have really great political discussion, but I'm not sure if he would feel comfortable with me talking about some of the things that we've talked about off the record, um, without, uh, without him being here to elaborate. But we had this really good discussion the other day where he said, hey, Scott, you know, it's a little alarming to me that uh, you're not reading or listening to the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, the Wall Street Journal, that you seem to be going down this rabbit hole of reading exclusively independent reporters like, you know, Barry Weiss on Substack or listening to podcasts by Brett Weinstein and his wife or, you know, seeking out alternative news sources where supposedly they're not fact-checked as well as on these major publications and they're not, um, they're basically not teams of researching and doing this work. It's it's a little bit more opinionated. You know, it's a little bit more, uh, who would that be? Like a little bit more Ben Shapiro, a little bit more Dave Rubin, a little bit more, um, who who's the very, who's the guy that just died? Oh, Rush Limbaugh. You know, he, he just made, he made a living out of, giving his opinion about the news, not making the news. Uh, and, you know, it was a fair argument because I, I don't really like traditional news sources. I can't tell you the last time other than catching a clip on a political blog or something. I can't tell you the last time I logged on or turned on a CNN or an MSNBC or a Fox News newscast. Like, I just don't watch any of that garbage anymore. Cancel my subscription to the New York Times. Can't, or uh, Sorry, uh, cancel my subscription to the Wall Street Journal. Cancel my subscription to um, the Atlantic. Can't, yeah, cancel my subscription to the New York Times. I just don't get any of those publications anymore, partially because I think they're so biased and that the editorial sections have basically taken over the newsroom, number one. And number two, because 
uh, and this is kind of the discussion that we were having or that I forgot to have, so maybe I'll have to send him this clip. Um, I, I think the real manipulation in the media is the stories that they choose to give coverage to and the stories they choose not to give coverage to. And, you know, just like I don't think there was overwhelming fraud in the 2020 presidential election, I think the fraud, if you want to call it that, or the, I think the the scandal or the conspiracy, if you want to go back in time, is keeping everybody locked down long enough so that they could go to mail-in uh, ballots. So, for example, in the state of California, Governor, Governor Newsom just waved his hand and I went from somebody who had always voted in person to I got a mail-in ballot, right? I, and I think I might have still had the option to go to an in-person ballot, but they wanted to make it as easy as possible for everybody to vote. And this gets into a whole nother conversation, but I don't know that it should be particularly easy to vote. I don't think there should be barriers to entry based on your race or your sexual preference or where you live, but I think you should have to get up off your ass, go to the polls, be an informed voter, click the little buttons, do the little things, um, and, and, and that's kind of how it should work. That's how it has always worked. And if you want to go through the process of verifying your signature and verifying your ID and verifying the ballot and, you know, sending a mail-in ballot in, okay, cool. You should be able to opt into that, but to make it, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, what was the conspiracy? We've always known that the population at large will vote more liberal, progressive, democratic, but people that actually get up to go vote are tend to lean more conservative, Republican, libertarian, right? And so if you want to talk about what was the fraud, I think the fraud was keeping everybody locked down longer than needed so that we could go to 100% mail-in ballots, right? Um, and just like individual news pieces might be factually correct or individual news pieces might be accurate in their reporting, I think the real fraud in the news media is the stories that they choose to give light to and not give light to because it fits or doesn't fit a certain narrative. So, for example, let's just picture this. Ted Cruz, senator from Texas, loudmouth, grandstander. I think he's actually a very brilliant guy. I don't really agree with some of his politics and I don't really agree with some of the ways that he goes about getting things done, but he's a brilliant guy. He's kind of the standard bearer for the Republican party. He's from Texas, which depending on what side of the political spectrum you're on or how you feel about masks or how you feel about personal liberties, you're either rah, rah, Texas, or you're like, I, I was so glad I, I was, I, I was awkwardly cheering when the Texas power grid went down, depending on where you fall, you're either like, a pro-Texas person, even if you don't live in Texas, or you're kind of like an anti-Texas person, right? So just imagine for a moment what front news story it would be if Ted Cruz was robbed in Austin, Texas, or Dallas, Texas, or I think the Capitol's in Austin. Yeah, I think the Capitol's in Austin. So, so uh, can you look this up, Chris, where the state legislator meets in Texas? I think maybe it is Dallas, actually, or maybe it's Houston. I'm so confused now. Um, anyway, so let's say Ted Cruz is walking into the Capitol building or he's walking around the neighborhood in his house and he's robbed, right? Where do they meet? Did you get it? I learned they uh, meet on at noon on the second Tuesday in January of odd-numbered years. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, the state legislator, the state legislator for Texas has a weird meeting schedule. Anyway, <laughs> let's just say Ted Cruz was robbed. 
Do you have any doubt? I don't care if you're listening to this show and you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're a Libertarian, you're a, a, a Burkean anti-capitalist, uh, anarchist, whatever your classification is. But just for a moment, imagine Ted Cruz or Rand Paul or Ron Paul or one of these people that have been rah-rah police. Um, you know, we got to live in safe areas. Imagine if they had gotten robbed. That would be front page news on every media outlet everywhere in the country 24-7 for days, right? Well, former Senator Barbara Boxer, uh, who lives here in California, and not only was she a senator for 34 years or 28 years or something like that, she's also been a commentator and like a guest uh, uh, guest host on CNBC, MSNBC, ABC. She was robbed the other day um, walking around her Oakland house. She's lived in the Bay Area her whole life. Uh, that's where she started out in politics. That's where she lived the whole time she was a senator. Uh, she actually lost her seat in the Senate two years ago or three years ago to Kamala Harris, who then, of course, became vice president. So um, Barbara Boxer was big, 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 big person in California and national politics for three decades. And, you know, the story, thankfully, isn't horribly dramatic. It could have been a lot worse. She basically was rocking around her neighborhood. She saw a guy approaching her. She tried to cross the street because the guy looked suspicious. Um, funny story, though. Uh, none of the stories mention the description of the man, but we'll talk about that at a later date. Um, so Barbara Boxer crosses the street. She gets thrown to the ground. She gets her cell phone stolen. Like, they were clearly targeting her because then there was, like, a getaway car. The guy jumped into the car and took off. You know, horrible. I don't want to see anybody attacked. I especially don't want to see an old lady that looks like my grandmother before she passed away uh, get attacked. But, you know, at 80 years old, some dude was willing to throw her to the ground and steal her cell phone and crickets, crickets from the media. I had to Google it to see it because I didn't see on an e on any major uh, outlets. Um, I had I had read an article. Now, this article was from a very right-leaning publication, so take it with a grain of salt. But I had read an article where, like, CNN gave it no story coverage. Uh, MSNBC and ABC did, like, a 16-second segment on it on one of their 10 o'clock morning shows, which are the shows, of course, that nobody watched. And just nobody's reporting it, right? Because that doesn't fit the narrative. That doesn't fit the defund the police narrative. That doesn't fit the blue states are worse off right now when it comes to crime than red states narrative. That doesn't fit the narrative. You know, God forbid somebody was to um, dig into this and find out who assaulted her or God forbid the color of the person that assaulted her or God forbid if the person who assaulted her was out on probation if they end up catching the gentleman. Like this story doesn't fit the narrative. So it doesn't get any 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 sunlight. It doesn't it doesn't get the air that other uh, other news stories that would fit the narrative get. And that's why I don't like the mass media. There was another one, and I'm not going to belabor you with all the points. We're actually going to put a link to this guy, Nate the Lawyer, because I really like him. Uh, Nate the Lawyer, he's an awesome guy. He's got like 100 subscribers, and a couple of his videos have gotten like 2 million, 3 million views. Uh, he's a lawyer, and he breaks down and I think a very fair way. I can't even really tell what his politics are, because some of his videos, he's a little bit more left. Some of his videos, he's a little bit more right. He did this great video breaking down the U.S. women's soccer equal pay gap, right? And so if you remember, um, 
what's her name? Uh, Megan uh, Rapin, Rapino, 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 Rapino. I think that's how you say it. Megan Rapino gave this speech at the White House, and then Biden got up right after her and talked about how there's this pay gap. And by the way, anybody who's actually looked into the pay gap knows that it's 100% a political talking point when you normalize for all the statistical um, oddities, like women have children, men don't, uh, men work more um, uh, dangerous jobs, women tend not to when you, when you when you normalize for all the variables the pay gap is like 2%. Like YouTube a video on that it'll be eye opening. If you think there's this huge pay gap between men and women, google the actual economics of it. The reality will blow your mind. Um but and and again this is why we're going to link to it cuz I don't want to just go into the same 15 minute diatribe that Nate the lawyer here did better than I could and his graphics are really great. Um you know Nate the lawyer talked about how the lawsuit from the U.S. women's soccer team because they were they were suing uh, the Olympic Soccer World Committee, whatever it's called, I don't know. Um, you know, he basically went through and he's like, "No, this is why the lawsuit was unfounded. This is how the women are actually making more. This is how the women were offered the same deal as the men in 2016." And the women turned it down because they wanted another deal with benefits and other things that the men weren't asking for. Just go watch Nate's video. It's awesome. Um, and, and my point in bringing this up is that here's the president, you know, pontificating about something. Here's a lady that was invited to the White House to talk about this ongoing false claim that women are paid less than men. And here is a major lawsuit that just got thrown out because it was completely unfounded. And actually what they found is that the women, when you factor in their benefits, are actually making more than the men. And my point is, you shouldn't have to go to YouTube to see Nate, the lawyer, break down the same thing that any reporter at the Wall Street Journal, at MSNBC, at Fox News, at ABC, at CNN, they all could have done the same fact-finding mission and figured this out. But of course, women getting paid the same or more than men doesn't fit the kind of left-leaning news narrative, right? And then even talking about the pay gap doesn't fit the right-leaning news narrative. So this story, which I think is a very important story, because if you remember, Megan Rapino, Rapino, um, who has the the purple hair. She's a great soccer player. She's playing the Olympics right now for the U.S. Hope she wins. Um, uh, she's been a big deal. Like she's been on the cover of Sports Illustrated. She was invited to the White House to speak. She's kind of like the standard bearer for this idea of like you know women don't get paid nearly as much as men. But the reality is it's just not true. And and the fact that like any news media won't touch this because it doesn't fit the current narrative one way or another, it grosses me out. And this is a story worth talking about where if you look at the math factually and people can and start to understand, um, you know, this is where women just vary from men, right? And, and this is another great example where the men valued making the most cash in 2016. We want to make the most cash. And the women said, hey, we don't want the same deal as the men because we want some injury protection, we want maternity leave, we want medical benefits, which the men all waived. So you can just see in this one little small microcosm, like women's desires, generally speaking, are different or motivations are differently aligned than men and that's okay and we should be able to talk about that but since the news media is so scared or they've got their dialed in narratives or a a, a newsworthy story doesn't fit their narrative they just don't report on it and so to my friend joe who i'll send this clip to the reason why i don't read more stuff from the wall street journal or the new york times or what have you is because i just don't trust them i don't trust them to pick the right stories I don't trust them to not let their editorial board take over the newsroom. And I don't trust them to present anywhere near 
relevant news that's relevant to the national dialogue unless they're trying to do exactly what I know they're trying to do, which is create clickbaity click shit that fits the narrative of their own audience. So that's why I'm out on traditional news media. Love you, Joe. Love everybody who stuck around for the hour to listen to this. Thanks so much. And by the way, we talked about it earlier in the show, but you know what to do. If you listen to this, subscribe to the places, click the likey button, do all the things you're supposed to do to help out our algorithm. Because again, I do this on Thursday and Friday and Saturday night just as a way to calm down, talk about interesting stuff, smoke a cigar, hide from the family for an hour while they're watching a movie. Uh, but I also like to know that some of you are watching it. So thanks so much for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.